what I discovered in practice was sometimes I would focus my energies and efforts on things that ultimately would not advance me. And I would get caught up in practicing things that were not going to be beneficial. So a lot of what I had to learn was what exactly to practice. And oftentimes it's the practicing of the basic things that will empower performing at a very high level. Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology. We are the leading business education in transactional competence. Broadcasting from Ojai, California, this is the podcast for you, the ambitious professional who simply wants an advantage. And now you won't settle for an ordinary life. You want real results, real satisfaction, not just at work, not just in your career, but in every area of your life. Our primary feature today is an interview with Marcus Bell of Bellringer Enterprises. He's a music producer in Los Angeles, California. Beginning piano at age two, he explains how counterintuitive it is to focus and why so many people have a difficult time simply practicing. Also, we'll bring you a taste of one of our most popular webinars by listening in on a guru talk with Kirkland Tibbles. This one will point out your personality and transactional behavior, and you'll find out how that impacts your ability to get what you need or want. Now, Marcus has been an Influence Ecology member for a little over four years, and his deliberate practice is now legendary. First of all, if I were to introduce you properly, I think it might take the next 15 minutes because there's so many things that you've accomplished. I love, you know, that much of your story begins out with the imagery of you sitting on a phone book at two years old, learning to play piano. I was preparing a little bit for this interview and thinking about who might be listening to this. And I thought about all the creative professionals. I thought about all the artists. I thought about you know, so many people that would love to involve themselves in the creative profession in music and art and theater and so many different things. And we have the unique opportunity, Marcus, you and I, to help them along. And you have an enormous amount of specialized knowledge. You have a rich history. But before we get underway, can you tell us a little bit about you and who you are and what you've accomplished? So I write and produce hit songs for TV, film, commercials, celebrity artists and developing artists and i train celebrity artists and independent artists through my company star boot camp i've been in the music industry since i was two years old Hmm. and i've started my first company when i was 12 years old it was a record label called ring a bell records now i didn't know anything (laughs) about the music business then but but i ended up learning a lot failing a lot and using everything that I learned when I was young and have been applying it as an adult. I've worked for various record labels, pretty much every major record label in the entertainment industry, from Sony mm-hmm. Records to Universal to Warner Brothers Records. And I've worked with and worked for projects, whether it's marketing and promotions or music producing or songwriting or vocal coaching or licensing artists like P. Diddy, Usher, Britney Spears, Justin Timberlake, Nicki Minaj, and a a slew of other recording artists in different entertainment enterprises. Going through the early days of being an entrepreneur, can you just say a little bit about, you know, some of the early lessons? Sure. If I go all the way back, I first started in musical theater. So I tap danced and sang and And I acted in a lot of different productions. So I did a Mm. contract with Virginia Opera back in Virginia, where I'm from. And they ended up putting me on tour. And so I got this permission from the school board to leave school and do the tour. That's when I decided, hold on a second. I'm in front of thousands and thousands of kids and I write songs. Hmm. I think I need to start a record label. At the time, I was being mentored by the then-time president of the Family Channel, Mm. 
and an executive at Eminem Mars and a few other African-American business owners. They didn't really know specifically the music industry, but I would have lunch with them and they would give me all kinds of business advice. Mm -hmm. And so my first lessons I learned the hard way because I had all these tapes and CDs and record stores all over Virginia and had no system to track what was going on, had no help. And they were supportive, but my mom and family had their own careers. So as soon as I got my driving permit, I started taking off and going from record store to record store. And that was my first real lesson was that if I was to do anything of significance that I could not do it alone, anything that is going to be successful must happen with the cooperation of others and happens in a team. So my first big lesson was get help and good help people that are qualified. That's a great one. Get help, valued help, right? And I got to wonder too, because I don't know what happened between two, you know, two sitting on the phone book and here you are now. Was there something that had you discovered? Did you play in front of somebody who go, you know, said, wow, this guy's got talent? what was where was the that moment yes so a couple of things happened i was doing a lot of performing and the newspaper in virginia started writing articles about me and they started to discover me so i had some press happening in the news media and on television different news outlets and all of a sudden i get this call to come and perform at clinton's inaugural event that's amazing. And that's where it started. I was with the group. And at the time, it was Will Smith, uh, Boys to Men, and some other artists were performing uh, at the same event. And so backstage, the rest of the kids that were there, they were all trying to get autographs from, from Will Smith and, and some of the other artists that were there. And, and I was not. I noticed this guy that was over in the corner and he had this camera that I had never seen before. And I think it was one of the first digital cameras. Mm. And so I was attracted to and drawn to him. (laughs) And so I went over to him and just to give you a little, little funny story. The reason why I had all these different mentors when I was young, my mother would read about people in magazines and cut out the articles and then reach out to them and ask them to be my mentors. My mother had cut out this article on a guy in People magazine who was, you know, wait a second. So, I'm sorry. So, so she just, so she she would just do, did she just decide that one day she was going to do that? Was she just being a, a very ambitious mother or was she already knowledgeable of that kind of thing and, and was already doing it in some other capacity or did she just have a great, you know, a really ambitious mom. What you know, I can't imagine yeah, my mother so, doing that. Well, well, yeah. Well, my my mother, she's one of the smartest women that I know. Mm. <laughs> she was a civil rights activist. She herself was a tennis prodigy. She was one of the first black women to play tennis in the U.S. Open. So she came from a very unique experience. I and see. so at the time. My father, uh, they had gotten divorced. My mother and my father, my parents got divorced. And my father wasn't in my life for about 10 years of my growing up when all this activity was happening. And so she decided that she was going to move ambitiously and put Hmm. uh, African-American male figures in my life. And so when she read about someone that she thought would fit the bill... (laughs) And, and had enough status or whatever that I would actually listen to them because, I you know, I thought I knew everything. Uh, she would reach out to them. I don't know how many people she reached out to, but uh, but I had some really great that mentors. Is, that's amazingly fortunate. That's, uh, you know, it's like having someone reaching out to centers of influence uh, before you even have the thought to do so. And uh, that's fantastic. Wow. Yes. So, so, just, so just to catch up this story. So I'm at the inaugural event. And uh, that was the other thing. I was always told, don't be afraid to talk to anyone, like talk to strangers. <laughs> yeah. uh, so so whenever I performed, I'd always sell out of CDs. I, I, I'd always go home with 
a book bag full of, of cash because in every performance, I would walk around the audience. I would meet and introduce myself to every single person in the audience and created some type of rapport with them and then sell my CD. So I remember opening my first bank account when I was six. I would always deposit this money. I go in with all these bags of cash. But anyway, so I wasn't afraid to approach this person. So I went over and I started talking with this guy about his camera. And it's like, oh, wow, I haven't seen anything like that. And so we start talking and he says, so, OK, who are you and, you know, what do you do? I was like, well, I'm a saxophonist and I produce my own music and I have a, a CD. If you want to buy it, <laughs> I can send it to you. If you give me your, your card or your information, I can I can send you a copy and, and if you want to buy it. And he's looking at me. He's, he says, OK. And so he gives me his card. I put his card in my pocket and then and then I move on, do the show or whatever. So I get home and of course on that trip, I accumulated a bunch of cards. I look at his card and it was the head of A&R for Warner Brother Records who ended up uh, being the same guy that my mother had pulled an article out of People Magazine and given it to me and said, this is somebody that you should wow. meet very successful person in the entertainment industry. And that was the first music executive I've right, ever so met. So I, I just got to say, I'm, I'm smiling from ear to ear just because it's so fun to listen to the story. And, and, and I'm thinking on the one hand, how lucky, but I'm also aware of, you know, that saying, and I'm, I'm going to trash it, but it's something about where practice meets opportunity or something like that. I, I, I can't remember the saying, but you know what I'm talking about. Uh, obviously are a guy who practices quite deliberately. I didn't have anything to compare what I was doing to at the time until competing for scholarship money. <laughs> and so I, I won these talent competitions to get a scholarship for college. I was participating in the NAACP AXO competition. So I won for Virginia and flew out to Dallas, I think it was. And basically it was talent from all over the country and that's when I got to see where I was mm. because everybody in that competition, they were all incredible virtuosos and, and things like that. That's when I realized, oh, OK, well, in my area, I was on top of my game. But when you start stretching out to the rest of the country, wow, I still have work to do. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I got from that. But I, I want to say something else about the practice. What I discovered in practice was sometimes I could focus on the things that would not advance me and my playing and get caught up in practicing things that were not going to be beneficial. Part of what I had to learn was what to practice. And sometimes it's the practicing of the basic yeah. thing is what will empower your performing at a very high level. So whenever I, I practice at all on any instrument, uh, now I play about 12 different instruments, I always focus on the basics. And so it's kind of like training that we do here in, inside of Influence Ecology. I'm always pulled back to, okay, what are the basics about transactionalism? What are the basics about how to look at my business? What are the basic fundamental things like focusing on one thing, not allowing the offers that come to my company to, to take us off course. So great, Marcus. So let's just go back for a second. I want to take us back to there you are backstage, the guy with the camera, the digital camera, the producer you've just met. It's the guy that your mom had written to from People Magazine and everything. So that was the lucky break in the story. Is that correct? Yes, that, that was the break that, that got me thinking of possibilities outside of local But between Virginia. then and now, is there anything else that we should know about your journey? Now, part of my life's journey is helping other artists learn how to make money in the music industry, learn how to uh, avoid the pitfalls that happen with most artists, actually and being able to make a living um, because I, it is possible to make a really great living in the music industry. And you don't have to necessarily be world famous in order to make a living as a creative. 
It's all about perfecting your craft and targeting specific markets and being known for something. All right. Well, I'm curious about how you heard about Influence Ecology and why you started to participate. How'd that go down? One of the things that is uh, really important to me is that the work that I do does something to impact humanity. I'm, I'm a music producer, but I recognize that my real role is creating cultural conversations. And so inside of creating cultural conversations, uh, what I've been studying and looking at is how do I impact culture for the good of humanity and use my music to uh, make a difference in people's lives and using entertainment to make a difference for people. And so I was in this course and a couple of people mentioned Influence Ecology to me. Oh, you should check out Influence Ecology. I was like, Influence Ecology? What's, what's that? That sounds interesting. Uh, I like the, the word influence and ecology, that together. Uh, okay, what, what is that about? I was having a lunch with a friend of mine, and he began to uh, talk to me about this book called Influence. Uh, that he had been studying with this organization and we start talking about things like scarcity and reciprocity and social proof and liking and all these different um, tools of influence and 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 that really got me excited and then another woman uh, approached me and said you know there's this influence ecology and then it it clicked for me wait a minute that's the same company that my friend that I had lunch with was talking about. And that's how I got exposed to Influence Ecology. And she made an, an introduction. And then I got on the phone with you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll never forget our conversation because in that conversation, because I'm, I'm very much into growth and development and I'm always studying and reading. I'm a bookaholic. And so, and I like environments of rigor and study. And so when I was on, on the call uh, with you to talk about my potential participation with Influence Ecology, there are a couple of things in that conversation which hooked me. One, because I've been to a lot of sales presentations. I've sold a lot of things, a lot of music. <laughs> I've uh, encouraged a lot of people uh, you know, to play music and radio stations and, and transacted a lot in the entertainment industry. And there was something in our conversation that happened that had never happened to me before. And, and it was something that you said, you asked me how much money would it cost for me to, to retire or it was, it was a money question that you asked me. And I think at the time, was I still in debt or I was coming out of debt? Maybe I was out of debt then, but anyway, it hooked me. (laughs) And, and I said, wow. Okay. I recognize that some tool had been just used on me and I don't know what that is. Hmm. And I think it's brilliant because it seems like I have some things that I can learn here. But that's how I got into influence. You know, there's so many smart people. You're, you know, you're obviously an intelligent man. You're, uh, you're educated. You have an enormous ethic uh, of practice. Uh, you obviously are someone who cares deeply about people. And like so many of our customers, who are the, you know, those kinds of people who who seek to produce offers that, that uh, you know, produce an enormous amount of money for them and satisfaction and value for the world. When you first started studying here, are there any other examples of where you saw how naive you were or you, you saw that you weren't thinking accurately, anything like that? The first thing that... I was completely naive about. Had to do with my identity as a music producer. 
one of the things that I faced was because I have an ability to produce music in a lot of different genres, I was under the impression and I had been told kind of how great that was that I could do all these different yeah. genres. And and so and that, that was always exciting being able to, to do that. And then what I uh, recognized when I started studying with Influence Ecology about that was that it made me an incredible generalist. So me being able to do all these different things. So my job description looked like something like I play piano, I vocal coach, I play saxophone. I can even hop on the organ. I can be a choir director. I can, I can teach choreography. Uh, be, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, performance coaching, uh, yeah. tap dancer, tambourine player, and uh, let's see, I also play spoons. <laughs> oh, did I mention I'm an entrepreneur? <laughs> and you walked on. And I have a marketing company. <laughs> A marketing company, a health and fitness company, a uh, so not only a, a generalist in music, but a generalist in, in business. And OK, I decided I wanted to be like Richard Branson and have 300 companies. <laughs> and that's with a team of one yeah. Yeah. or a team of four. So one of my biggest lessons that helped me get more on target was that lesson about being first in mind for one thing. What is the thing that you will be first in mind for? all the for? people that uh, have the fantasy to be the Richard Branson or the Will Smith or the, you know, all those things that they now have afforded the opportunity to do. What's the thinking that you would say is common, you know, because there is a common thought that people have about, you know, all those different things that you could do. Um, can you see if I can give a voice to that narrative that's so, so common in the marketplace? Yeah, well, it's the, it's the whole entrepreneur mystique, the do it yourself, don't work for people, make it happen. There, there's a whole uh, environment around being able to do everything. And I fell victim to that kind of thinking. Partially as a creative, it was, okay, I'm making income from all these different things. And so, so I, I looked at it as like, this is kind of a, a survival strategy, being able to do a bunch of different things. So, okay, I'll take these different things that come my way because I wasn't really focused and honed in on, okay, I'm going to target doing this one thing and develop my relationship base for that one thing and, and all of that. And I wasn't really making offers or invitations or really going after one thing in the way that I am set up to do now. The more I focused being a music producer, which in itself has a lot of different definitions and, and, and so forth, but uh, when people come to me as a music producer, they're plugging into decades of experience and knowledge and, and I'm able to be help in a way that I wasn't even present to before as a specialist in the music industry. And so as I began to communicate more and more about that specialization, the more and more my income increased and then it started to double and then my income started to triple. The more I stopped talking about, oh, I played a tambourine, the more I stopped talking about, oh, I could do this or do that and start distorting what people would come to me for. The more my income increased, the more work for that one particular thing so would well. happen. Can you say that one more time? <laughs> <laughs> that was beautiful being all things to all people or or being this thing and that thing and that thing and that thing it is a survival strategy for many people and so the focus or, or specialize on one thing often seems like they're going to cut off the opportunity to make money in other words i'm going to cut off the opportunity to survive how come that's such an opposite effect in your own words, how come focus produces the opposite effect of cutting off some route to survival? The quote that comes to my mind, I don't remember who said it, but it was something like, be yourself because everyone else is taken. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think I've heard it. I don't know who said it, but we'll, maybe we'll just attribute it to you. 
exactly. So it's kind of it's kind of the same thing I think in the marketplace. Uh, the more you identify what it is that makes you unique, the more I identified what makes me unique the more differentiated I became. I'll just give an example. I was doing a lot of music internationally. I was combining different uh, genres of music. So I would go to India and take Bhangra music and Carnatic Indian music, and I would mix that with hip hop and pop music. Or I'd be in Japan and I would take uh, traditional Japanese music and I would mix that with hip hop. And then I would listen to Middle Eastern music and work with some Middle Eastern artists and then take that and mix that. And then I, I then people started coming to me for that. For if you had a song that could have an international kind of flavor thing with it or whatever. I started to become the first person that people would think about um, that knew who I was or that were that, you know, had been exposed to my work. Whenever something international oriented came up, they would they would call me and say, hey, I have this Indian artist. I think it would be great for you to work with them because I started developing this identity as a global music producer. So with that, to respond to what you were saying, it's kind of like um uh, people, when they're deciding what they're going to spend their money on or they, they have a need. And then what is the first thing that comes to your mind to fulfill that need? Or who is the first person that comes to your mind to fulfill that need? And then if you have enough people thinking of you, then your business is going to grow. But if people are thinking of you in terms of, oh, well, you do a lot of different things and I don't really know what to come to him for. I like him, but I don't know exactly what to go to him for. Then there's less opportunity to increase and dig in and produce uh, results in, in the business. And so for the creative type, for somebody in the creative professions, or, you know, we have a lot of business people who are CEOs or, you know, they're the what we would call an inventor personality for them. What would you say to them if they if the thought of of doing one thing and doing one thing well just bores the crap out of them? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> you know, like oh my god, I might as well die. That just bores the crap out of me. Oh my um, goodness! And oh I, my goodness! And I also experienced something uh, as an inventor myself. I experienced something quite counterintuitive about that. But for you, what would you yes. say to that? Ah, uh, I say I feel your pain. <laughs> Um, so, so, okay. So, so there, there's a, there's a story I want to share. So one of the things that, uh, about this, that I, that I learned and identified was as a creative, how important it is to have your own voice. So in having your own voice, your voice can be heard and people will be able to know, okay, well, oh, that's Marcus's voice. Oh, that's Bellringer's voice. And so same thing with a painter. If there's a particular way that you paint that can be identified as you, then that brings you a step closer to being able to, to cash in on that uniqueness. And so I think there's a lot of thing in the marketplace of kind of being a copycat. And so I run across artists all the time who sound like Beyonce or rap like Jay-Z or or different artists or someone's trying to uh, do their Andy Warhol thing or there are a lot of people that are, are copying. And when I start thinking about those successful artists and those successful music producers and those successful creatives whatever the the field whether it's a dancer or whether whatever the field may be they've created a uniqueness for themselves now in terms of getting bored with that thing that people keep coming to you for such as when you have a hit song and there's a big hit song people start coming to you because they want one of those um, and you get tired of recreating that same thing. One of the ways that one of my vehicles for being able to deal with that and kind of get it out of my system and I kind of built my business around this is instead of confusing the marketplace 
with doing something different and completely tainting my brand, what I've done to satisfy that itch, and it is an itch, is I create a whole other identity. And that other identity, I would do some side projects and that's just to get the itch out. I want to create something that's crazy. I want to create something that, you know, my current audience would completely be turned off from probably, but there's an audience for the crazy thing that I did. And so let me call that something else. Let me create another identity. That's a very similar kind of thing. It's the difference between brand extension, which is just more of your identity and some other brand altogether. uh, Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes. It's, it's funny. I I, uh, I run across my identities, various identities popping up in a marketplace <laughs> <laughs> and and different identities getting fan mail <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> because they each have their own personality. All right. Like well, that. what are some of the things that you might say to artists or creative professionals what is it that you find they often get so wrong? And what's your advice to them about that? Mm, okay. So the first thing uh, we talked about earlier was to focus on one thing and get known for it. I find a lot of uh, especially really creative artists come and they want to do a project that has classical music in it. And, and then I want to you know, have a beatboxer come in and then I want to be hip hop and then I want to do this rock song and then I want to do this dubstep song and then I want to do this mumbaton and then I want to do a salsa song and, and all of that. And the first thing that we have to do is break all that out and decide what is the one thing that this project is going to be known for? What is the one thing that this artist is going to be known for? And so with anybody in the creative field or in business, uh, period, what is it? that your company is going to be known for? What is it that you as an entrepreneur and the products that you create, what are you going to be known for? That's the first thing. The second thing that I find is I call it shiny object syndrome. Hmm. And, And that's all these different opportunities and that may not be right to take that don't necessarily align with the thing that you're known for that would take you off course. There are all kinds of business opportunities that I'm approached with constantly that I have to say no to because it would completely derail what I have in mind for my company and plans. And there are things that come to me that would be completely away from what my identity that is me, um, authentically me, in the marketplace. And so that that's that's the second thing I would say is is watch out for the, the shiny objects because hmm. <laughs> they'll, they'll get you every time. Uh, the third thing we talked about before is get help. People that know what they're doing and know what you don't know about things that you need to know. There's the, you know, I know what I know, I know what I don't know, and then I don't know what I don't know, make sure that you have people that know what you don't know, and you'll be that much more aligned with meeting your aims. And then the other thing that I I would recommend for artists, uh, and I'll just, I'll share a little story for this, is I recognize that a lot of people were chasing the U.S. billboard charts, looking to have success there. I decided that I was not going to do that And that I would focus on territories that were not the U.S. and get success outside of the country. And so I focused where other people were not focused. And I looked for opportunities that other people were not pursuing and and put myself there. And so if the crowd is going in one direction, look for a hole where they're not going and Hmm. get in there. Beautifully said. All right. Why study transactional competence? It's like playing the piano. The better you are at foundation, scales, and chords, the more when you're sitting in front of a piece of music, you're able to actually make the piece of music sing. And transactionalism and transactional competence is like that. The more you have those tools under your belt that you have command over, the better your company can sing, 
the better your enterprises can sing, the better your health can sing, the better your career can sing, because you have the tools to transact powerfully. Is there anything that you'd like to soapbox about, whether or not it's your own passions, vision, whether or not it's about what you're up to now and where you're headed. You know, I I know that you've had also uh, some interest in a lot of things uh, in the world and and wanting to make a difference there with, you know, the shootings that have happened recently and and what how the world is responding to them. Anything else you'd like to soapbox about? Yes. So, you know, I, I stand for oneness justice and health and happiness and creative self-expression for myself and the world. One of the things that that I've experienced in my own journey, and a, a lot of people don't know this, but I was involved in a, um, a busing case um, that was about integrating the school system in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. So I was in a, involved in a lawsuit that was an attempt at desegregating the schools there. Uh, my family and I, we, you know, we experienced death threats and all kinds of hate back then. And then fast forward, there was riots down there in Virginia Beach, and I was there when that happened. And there was um, the historically African American high school. There was an attempt to close that school, and I, at the time, was a student government president and. Uh, was part of the effort to save that school and keep it that historical school alive who had grace like Arthur Ashe and Missy Elliott went there and a lot of people uh, Ruth Brown uh, came from that school and so so there's this thing that persists where it's an us and them uh, kind of mentality and with the shootings that that have been happening that us and them persists and my soapbox for it is that it really is a one and the death of a police officer is is pain for all of us the death of an african-american youth is pain for all of us the the death of uh of anyone is pain for all of us and i i just i I really am passionately at work on being able to transform some of these conversations these cultural conversations that create the environment that has discrimination and racism and all kinds of isms and so so i'm I'm at work on that and using entertainment uh, as a platform to to help change some of those narratives marcus bell you are uh, an amazing man and it's been a pleasure to interview you today i've i've enjoyed it i could talk to you for another hour uh all right we're gonna go ahead and so 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 so, so john so john be, before before we end i i gotta do this <laughs> <laughs> ladies and gentlemen that was the bell ringer <laughs> We're giving you access to a portion of a webinar led in May of 2016 by co-founder Kirkland Tibbles. For those unfamiliar with us, this webinar is a focused lecture for our membership on the specialized study that Kirkland began almost 30 years ago, work that is now the foundation for the curriculum of influence ecology. You could say he is our guru, and each podcast will feature what I like to call a guru talk. A takeaway we want to give to you, a way to listen in on our webinars and live conferences. Now, in this talk, Kirkland introduces one of our most popular topics. We all demonstrate a kind of personality and transactional behavior. And as you listen, you can discover your own personality and how it impacts your ability to get what you need or want. Living lives with other people through language. And in fact, language is how we construct the world around us to take care of so many things. It's how we construct in, in our, our cooperation with one another language. We live and create worlds in language. And then finally, what does it mean when I say human beings are transactional? It starts with that fundamental concept that we're a critter in an environment. 
and that we are social critters at that. We are social animals. We are social. We depend on others, and we need help, and we need lots of help. We get help how? Through reciprocal exchange. We transact. We are transactional. We are, as Adam Smith said, creatures of exchange. We get help through helping. It's reciprocal exchange, folks. And all transactions, we say, are fundamentally the same. They are a series of exchanges. So we're social animals. We need help. To get help, we give help. And we exchange goods and services and our talents and abilities through help. And all transactions are fundamentally the same. But we've noticed something as we've observed people out there in the world transacting. We've noticed that individuals tend to demonstrate certain styles and characteristics when engaged in exchanges, when engaged in these things called transactions. And that those individuals, as they begin to transact, start to demonstrate four particular styles of responses, reactions, and performance, and they become evident over time. They're observable. You can see them. Social animals, we live in a world of language where we create reciprocal exchange. We transact fundamentally the same way by helping people. You can observe four styles of responses and reactions. What are those four styles? This goes back, all the way back to the, the, the ancient Greeks when they first began to observe behavior and in much of the writing around the four temperaments, for example, we find that these four areas where you can identify people responding and reacting as they move in exchange are these. There's a fundamental personality that is uh, wired for the ideas in the world. There's a fundamental uh, personality that relates to people and relationships. They seek agreement in our social constructs. There's a personality that is hardwired for work and action. And there's a personality, a set of characteristics that is demonstrated by people who rely on and who depend on narratives of fact. So these four styles of personality have been observed and are written about since the ancients. And in fact, in almost every single culture, in almost single kind of culture, in many different discourses in cultures from ancient to today, we see evidence of the recognition of these four kinds of dominant styles in how people move in their work and how they take care of their most fundamental aims and needs in society. We have much evidence today of the four quadrant styles that I'm going to talk about tonight. And I could load up this slide, and in fact, I could spend the entire time tonight giving you example after example after example of the multitude of written material in white papers and research that back up and ground this whole notion of four quadrant personality theory. They exist in every single discourse I could find. In fact, at Influence Ecology, we have now identified nearly 200 different uh, programs and distinct articulations of this four quadrant personality theory. And some of them take it all the way into very distinct studies like religion, in ontology, in psychology, occupational theory and therapy, it's in, it's in social study, it's all over business, you name it, you can find it. In fact, there's quite a bit of work right now going on in medicine and neuroscience in this particular distinction that there are simply four styles of ways and characteristics, sets of characteristics for how people relate to one another. And we concentrate this entire study of these four styles into specific ways that people act when they are in the heat, in the middle of the most important exchanges of their life. I'm going to expand on these for a moment. 
And I want you to listen again to the narrative. Listen to the narrative that I'm going to produce around the, the whole story around how this all fits together. There is a personality that is hardwired for big ideas. They think long term and they think in stories of possibilities, possibilities for how we could live a better life, possibilities for future consequences. These are people who think long term. They live in a kind of subjective narrative. There are people who need people. There are people who live in the present. And for those folks who have big ideas, the thing they need the most is someone to help bring that idea to the people. They need to find those folks out there who are hardwired for gaining agreement and commitment in the social constructs where transactions occur. And there are people who are hardwired for relationship that are not hardwired for big ideas. There are people who are who are who demonstrate consistently when they get in the middle of transactions that they are short-term thinkers, like 30 to 90 day thinkers. They want to get the job done. They're doers. They make lists. They concentrate and focus on work and action. They may not be that good with the social constructs. They may not actually be concerned with or very good at the big idea, but what they are masterful at getting done in the world is producing those things that the idea guys and the relationship folks built and are handing them to get done. And then there is the personality that is past-based. This is the personality that recognizes that after all those good ideas and the people get involved and the work gets done, what's left is something to, uh, to, to judge, to assess, to turn into the facts of the matter and to deal with the consequences and results of all that behavior and action. Another look at this is, is from a philosophic view. Those folks up there in the sky, those idea folks, they tend to follow and tend to adhere to the constructs of philosophies of subjectivism and, and idealism. They're very high concept personalities. They think about what could happen out there in the world. And they are, in many ways, egotistical personalities. They, they kind of have to be. I mean, think about it. What kind of a personality and ego does it take to, to walk out into the world and go, we're going that way? Or people, what would, it, what, would it, what would it take to have an ego to say, people don't know what they want until I tell them? Steve Jobs. The next personality in line that tends to fall in behind the subjective thinker is the person who can construct narratives that build relationship and agreement in the social constructs where those ideas can take hold. These personalities are personalities that tend to be uh, a little flaky. Why? Because they live in a world of maybe. They live in a world where as we go along in the present, in the most present sense, building relationship, they are constructing narratives together. This is not a world of absolutes. This is a world that gets constructed along the way. This is a world that might adhere to a philosophy of a constructive philosophy at like anything the mind of man can conceive and believe it can achieve. Behind that philosophy, if anything is ever going to get done, comes an objective view. Those personalities that are hardwired to actually take the good ideas and the social constructs that are built, the promises made to those other people, and keep those promises are personalities based in work and action. They do committed work. They live in a short-term time frame, and they are objective. That means that they see the world in a black or white way. Things are what they are, and they are not what they are not. They don't argue with the fact that there's gravity. They count on it. They are not 
looking to construct narratives that about some possibilities. They're looking to construct narratives of getting things done. And then finally, without the skeptic, without those people in the world, to take all of those good ideas and all of those people and all of that hard work and take care of it, preserve it, turn it into evidence and skeptically assess and criticize and be critical of it, to give it a good solid evaluation of its utility and its value in the world, to judge it as something that is useful in the world. Without that personality, the rest of us would be in serious trouble. And so we need that skeptic. We need that fact-based personality to come in behind us all. And in many cases, clean up the mess and form it into something that can be taken into new ideas, where new concepts can be constructed. And more people can be involved and helped, ideally, or New work and action can get done, and round and round and round it goes, and that gives us the framework of what we will introduce now to use called the transaction cycle. And these are those four styles laid upon a transaction cycle. In our next episode, we interview Trisha Tyler, a principal at Mercer Health and Benefits. Trisha talks about how to create value for the companies that you work for. And one of the reasons I love this interview is that we have members who at first believe that they have no way to increase their income or shape their role when they work for a major corporation. You're going to hear that this is simply not true. When you create value for the companies you work for, then you really should be having conversations about being compensated what you're worth. When you become reliable to be able to create that value, whatever that thing is within your company, they will figure out a way, if it's valuable to them, to compensate you for what you're worth. If you'd like to know more about influence ecology and our approach, check out our webinar, Ambitious Living, The Eight Defining Principles. The webinar is available globally. We'll teach you the core principles practiced by the most successful and effective men and women we know. This webinar is for those who aspire to an influential life that provides measurable satisfaction for themselves, their family, and their organizations. This webinar is specifically designed for those who don't want to sacrifice a well-balanced life for superior financial rewards. They want it all. To find out more, you can find the link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word AMBITION to 805-262-9008 and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word AMBITION to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please find us on iTunes and subscribe, review, like, and share. Help to get the word out and make this podcast a huge success. Thank you for another great episode of the Influence Ecology Podcast. I'm your host, John Patterson. I want to thank our guest for a powerful interview and great takeaways. This podcast is made possible by the good work of the Influence Ecology staff, mentors, and members around the globe. We're grateful for co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and his 30-plus years of specialized study and practice that make all this possible. And finally, thanks to our producer Jason Kelly and Marcus Bell. 